I've listened to Murmur by R.E.M. for seven years. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. everybody and welcome back to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me as always is connor how are you i am me well that was never in question (laughs) is that a good thing are you good that you're you or i I think that's up to the individual person some people might think it's a good thing that i'm still me other people might wish i was somebody else you may get your wish later on in the episode i don't know We'll see. Stay tuned. This week we're talking about REM. No, not rapid eye movement sleeping. Uh, although that's cool. And Connor actually did a lot of rapid eye movement sleeping when we were supposed to be recording some episodes lately. What? What? <laughs> I'm just saying sleep happens. Uh, have you know my eyes are never rapid. Fair enough. That must be why you're always so tired. Isn't REM sleep like, isn't that the good sleep? I think that's the good sleep, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Maybe your eyes just... I haven't had a, I haven't had a good sleep since 2015. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's been a while. It's 2023 now. Ugh. I don't like that. <laughs> That's eight years of bad sleep. Ugh. Well, just, just stay awake for one more episode. We'll see. Anyway, why are we talking about sleeping? We're not. That's the whole thing I just said, was we're not talking about R.E.M. sleeping. We're talking about R.E.M. the band. Oh. Yeah. The Atlanta, Georgia alt-rock band that formed in 1980. What does R.E.M. stand for, if not rapid eye movement? Well, that's a great question. Um, It it does stand for rapid eye movement, but not really. Oh. It's not like a reference to it. They just... <laughs> They picked it out of a dictionary randomly. Well, then it kind of is a reference to it if they're like, we're going to take this word. (laughs) Well, I guess, yeah, a reference to it, but there's no reason for it. Mm. They named themselves like the Smashing Pumpkins did and just said, you know what? Why not? (laughs) Smashing like Britain, British people, not like throwing something on the ground. (laughs) Not like destroying it. That's the Smashing Pumpkins. That blew you away. I remember that blowing you away. You were like, absolutely not. (laughs) It did. I, I didn't believe it. Actually, I lost my first perfect week of factor spin because of that that was the mixtapers first four win episode yeah because i was in disbelief about the names and the origin it's seared in my memory but anyway let's talk about rem the randomly named rapid eye movement band they were founded by and for most of their early history consisted of members michael stipe who sings plays the guitar and does a lot of percussion work peter buck plays the lead guitar, the mandolin, the banjo, a lot of stringed instruments. Mike Mills plays the bass, the keyboards, and sings backing vocals. And these three were with the band all the way up until they called it quits in 2011. And then also among the founding members is Bill Barry, who is a drummer, does more percussion, also sings. He was with the band through 1997, and after that he kind of popped up occasionally until 2007. But at that point he left the band for good. Peter Buck and Michael Stipe were actually the first two members of the band to meet. They met at a record store in college, and they found out that they both liked a lot of similar music, punk kind of music, like The Velvet Underground and Patti Smith. Do you know either of those artists? Isn't The Velvet Underground the band that inspired the Pizza Underground that we talked about? Yes. Yes, The Velvet <laughs> Underground inspired not Gabrielle Applin's The Pizza Underground. So I guess, yeah, you've heard of them a little bit. We'll do an episode on them some. 
But uh, the two of them, like I said, they went to school together at the University of Georgia. Pretty soon, they met up with fellow students, Barry and Mills. They were playing music together since high school. And they were like, hey, let's just join up and make a band. Just for fun, you know? Uh, according to Michael Stipe, he said, there was never any grand plan behind any of it. But as bands often do, they started to pick up some birthday party gigs. Just, you know, around town. Ah. Yes. As one does. As one does, yeah. And they start opening for bigger and bigger bands. They start making a name for themselves and an audience. They were pretty happy with that trajectory, so they never even finished school. They dropped out, picked up a manager, and they started gigging around Athens, Georgia, and touring around the entire American South. And that was tough, because as one of these pioneer acts in alt-rock, there's not exactly a market for their type of music yet. They kind of are the the grandfathers of all alt-rock, like, today. They're paving the way. So when they toured, they kind of did it like Green Day did when they started out. You know, we talked about them in the bookmobile. R.E.M. just shoved themselves into a, an old small van, and they each got $2 a day for food. The mixtaper was sad when you saw that, when he saw you knew that already. Oh, that is sad. But imagine that kind of lifestyle, like just touring around, playing every night and... Trying to eat it for $2 a day? Yeah. This was back when, like, I don't know, what what, what is, this would have been in when? 19 when? 1980-ish. Hang on. The value of $2 in 1980 would be like having seven twenty three today. So, uh, I could probably do it, you know, eating off the, like, McDonald's dollar menu. That's a lot of Wendy's four for fours that didn't exist yet. Yeah. <laughs> the dollar menu, yeah, would be your best friend. The Wendy's four for four back then would have been the Wendy's 1447 for 1447. <laughs> what? Well, if you, if you go backwards with it, right? Or I if, guess no. If, if it had been $4 back then, today it would cost 1447 Yeah, yeah. Right. We got there. That's way too much for a four for four. Well, no, it would have been, you know, because you'd get 1447 for 1447 Yeah, that's true. What are they giving you a half of? <laughs> Probably like a chicken nugget. Okay, yeah, like a like a five piece instead of a ten piece. Oh, I was just imagining they took one and ripped it in half. Oh. <laughs> it was like, there's your 47. <laughs> no, I don't think that's the same thing at all. Anyway, uh, four for four touring schedule aside, in 1981, they started putting their music to tape. They recorded an early four-song EP featuring their first single, Radio Free Europe. It way exceeded all their expectations. When they initially made it, they pressed a thousand copies and they set aside 600 of them to send out as promo records to radio stations and, you know, other music critics, people like that. Was there that many radio stations and music people that they needed 600 of them? Yeah, well, think about it. They're trying to cover the entire, I mean, theoretically the entire country, but at least the South where their existing fan base and market is. And of course, the only way radio stations were going to get your song was to receive the record from you. I mean, they were just an independent. Sure. I just, I guess 600, I guess if you're trying to do it to the whole world, maybe makes a little more sense. I was just thinking like 600 felt like a lot. Well, I mean, it was, but like I said, it, it totally blew their expectations out of the water. They made that initial thousand and it was gone so fast. They upped that order six times and ordered 6,000 additional pressings. And then didn't sell a single one. No, no they still didn't. <laughs> Could they you sold. imagine? <laughs> That'd be awful. Like they estimated it perfectly. <laughs> no, saturated the market. No, it actually did sell a lot. New York Times named it one of the best 10 singles of the year. Radio Free Europe. That's wild. At that point, REM got approached by the major label RCA Records. Oh, we've talked about them. But they turned them down. Oh! They turned them down to work with IRS Records for their first proper EP called Chronic Town. Why did they turn them down? Money or... Was there a reason? I think they just wanted to stick with 
what they knew and what was working for them. I don't think they wanted to hand over as much control as RCA would have required. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. For their Chronic Town EP, they worked with a producer named Mitch Easter, and they were so happy with his work that they actually sought him out again against the label's wishes when it was time to make their first LP, Murmur. He and co-producer Don Dixon really kind of took a hands-off approach to all their recording, whereas the producer they had prior to him was really, really involved. He, he kind of forced the band to do a lot of different takes and even added his own keyboards or tweaked all these recordings without the band's permission. They did not like that. Yeah. So when Dixon and Easter come in and basically tell the band, hey, go wild, do what you want, I mean, that's awesome. But yeah, no, they really only had to redo things that were super duper bad, and the producers kind of kept their noses out of it, kept meddling to a minimum. And that's what led to the album we're talking about today, Murmur. Maybe they should have meddled a little more. You think? I mean, I guess not. They were super successful, but... <laughs> they were. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to our opinions. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. The recording process for Murmur began in 1982, but the album wouldn't come out until 83. They recorded most of it at Reflection Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the track list was made up of a lot of like road-tested songs, things that the audiences already were responding to from their live shows and their touring schedule. Mm. It's a good way to make a debut album that's memorable. Yeah. While they were making the record, they tried to be really intentional about staying away from musical tropes like guitar solos or heavy synthesizers, you know, things that were big and in the zeitgeist in the 80s because they wanted their music to feel timeless. And they knew that that wouldn't last. The synthesizers, yeah. Well, there. I mean, we've talked about a good number of songs that definitely feel dated, mm -hmm. stuck in their time period because of the tropes that they use. But, I mean, whether you love it or you hate it, I do think Murmur specifically feels pretty timeless. It sounds like an album that could come out today in some ways. Fair enough. And they even went so far to, like, avoid fads and trends that they even requested the drums be recorded isolated in a drummer's booth, which people had already stopped doing a while before 1980. You know, recording technology got good enough that you could put the drums in the same room as the rest of the band, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep it traditional, and so they isolated the drums. Interesting. Thing. Yeah, it is. I thought so too. Maybe they just didn't like the drummer. They just really didn't like Bill Barry. They're like, put him in his own room. Well, Bill Barry's the one that requested it. I guess maybe he didn't like the rest of the band. Oh, maybe he didn't like them. He, oh. <laughs> he was the only one to leave before 2011. So, oh, no. Early precursor to what would follow. Yeah. Well, when Murmur came out in April of 1983, it was a pretty big hit with the critics. Rolling Stone named it the record of the year, and it peaked at number 36 on the Billboard charts. It didn't actually move a ton of copies, though. It undersold expectations significantly by, like, barely passing 200,000 sold. But I think part of that just comes with them being a relatively new and unknown band at the time. I think as their popularity grew, I mean, the album sales eventually picked up. By 1991, Murmur would manage to get a gold certificate certification. And I think, you know, it did become a little more liked with age. In 1989, a couple years later, Rolling Stone remembered it as the eighth best album of the 80s. And in 2003, VH1 named it the 92nd best album of all time. Wow. Which I know 2003 was a while ago, but that feels a little high. Yeah, no, it definitely does feel high. Yeah. Uh, in the United Kingdom, it charted three times in 1994, 1996, and then in 2009, more than 25 years after its release. And, and uh, like I've mentioned, you know, it's one of the pioneer alt-rock albums. It kind of had the ability to write the playbook for a lot of the music that would follow. It's, it's pretty quiet, laid back. It's missing some of the punch, maybe, that modern alt-rock 
has kind of developed. But I don't think it's lacking any of the pluckiness. And I kind of wonder if that's part of why it's regarded so high, right? It's like one of those things, You, this is not going to, I don't know, maybe this doesn't make it into the episode because it's not something necessarily the audience can relate to. You just for the first time uh, here a few months ago watched The Thing. I did, yeah. And one of your critiques on it was, you know, because The Thing was kind of like the first of its kind of that kind of movie. Uh, and it inspired a lot of really famous, popular other movies you had seen. Yeah. And you kind of said that because you had seen all the things that came after it, this one didn't feel as good, but you could still appreciate that this is kind of what walked so that all those others could run. Yes. And I kind of wonder if that's why why this album is regarded as high as it is, yet people like you and me maybe don't regard it as high because we've seen what's been able to run because this walk yeah we know where it's headed as a genre yeah and what this like kick-started i think that's a really good point and probably pretty darn accurate look at me you can always count on me to make a good movie reference yep that's true you can but yeah in these early days people try to find things to compare their sound to since it was kind of a new uncharted territory people compared them to the birds and uh you know a couple more rock type groups and actually as kind of a tribute to their roots they almost included a velvet underground cover on their record whoa yeah it was their version of a song called there she goes again but they decided to cut it so that all the songs would be original and they didn't have to share any of the record's royalties with the Velvet Underground. So the success of Murmur, you know, with this really subtly strong debut album, led to a lot of rising acclaim with their sophomore album Reckoning, which is kind of like, in my mind, Murmur Part 2. <laughs> I listen to both kind of back to back and I kind of get the same vibes as like the Beatles' Rubber Soul to Revolver for the two of them. It represents a little bit of growth, but they're kind of sister albums in my mind. They switched up producers and record labels a few years later working with scott litt and signing with warner brothers records finally making that major label shift uh, it was in this era in the late 80s and early 90s that they actually really took off internationally and put out some of their biggest hits of all time including stand losing my religion shiny happy people everybody hurts all of those were coming out by 1995 I know you know some of those songs. Do I? Yeah. Yeah, I do know the songs. I thought about just trying to go along with a bit of not knowing them, but no, I do know them. Yeah, I was going to say. In 1996, after a pretty beleaguered tour supporting their record Monster, and when I say uh, it was a beleaguered tour, three of the members ended up having to have surgeries during the tour. Like, it was rough. Uh, but after that, they signed another contract with Warner, reportedly the largest ever to that time for $80 million. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty big. And uh, like we mentioned a year later, Barry left the band on the condition that the other three members would stay together and continue to make music, which is kind of funny because what was he going to do if they stopped making music? <laughs> yeah, come back. Like, come back, yeah. <laughs> just be him. Maybe there was some reverse psychology. He was trying to get the band all to himself since he didn't like the other three. Since he wanted to be in the isolation booth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's his evil plan the whole time. What a villain. I, I guess so. But no, that's just what they did. They kept making music until 2011 when they amicably decided to, quote, Call it a day as a band. And it's honestly refreshing to hear about a band that doesn't have to have an ugly breakup, you know, get into fights. They could still be friends. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, over the course of their 28-year career, they put out 15 studio albums, four live albums, six EPs, and they made over 75 music videos. It's a pretty prolific discography for R.E.M. By the time it was all said and done, they were one of the biggest selling artists in the world, moving more than 90 million albums, which is a figure that surprises me. I mean, that's a lot. 
They won four BMI Pop Awards, two Billboard Music Awards, three Brit Awards on six nominations. They've won six Danish GAFA Awards on 23 nominations, which is wild, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of is. Denmark really loves R.E.M. Yeah. <laughs> and they were also nominated for 15 Grammys from 1991 to 2002, of which they won three for Losing My Religion and their record Out of Time. They were also, with those 75 music videos, pretty frequent names at the MTV Video Music Awards, earning more than 30 nominations and winning a dozen times. And in 2007, their very first year of eligibility, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Look at them go. Yeah. Other little trivia tidbits, R.E.M. is also a band that's really notable for their activism. They were super actively involved in fundraising and awareness campaigns for human rights, environmental conservation, and feminism, and they advocated for all kinds of preservation of a lot of historic buildings in Athens, Georgia, their hometown. That's nice. It is. And of course, as I'm sure you can imagine, as the grandfathers of alt-rock, they have a long list of people who claim them to be inspirations. That list includes artists like Radiohead, Nirvana, The Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains, Hootie and the Blowfish, and plenty more. But that's just a list of the ones that I found kind of interesting. And all the other ones weren't interesting enough to make it. So, sorry guys. Tough luck. But, speaking of tough luck, I'm ready to try my hand at another round of Factor Spin, I guess. Oh boy, it's that time. It is that time. Hey, it's me, the mixtape Welcome back to the show. How you been? How's your How's your 2023 going? Welcome to the show. Well, so we started off season six last week. Oh yes, that's right. With a uh, super unexpected 50-50 tie. <laughs> Who would have thought? I know. I wouldn't have. So uh, let's see if we can break this tie. Yes, in my favor. Let's do it. Uh, you can easily break the tie by just getting them all wrong. Okay, well, point taken. You mentioned offhand that you were really excited for this episode of factor spin and that makes i didn't say that i said i'm interested to see how it goes (laughs) oh (laughs) there's a difference (laughs) well then that makes me feel a lot better actually (laughs) and let's get started with our first one michael stipe likes to immortalize things in bronze like as a sculptor correct so what kind of things does he sculpt Normal everyday objects that fascinate him. This could be a lot of different things. So what, like still life, like a basket of fruit? Um, uh, not quite. Fancy end tables, funky lamps. What's he? Nope. Toothbrushes. That's more along the right right line of thinking, but. <laughs> I was afraid of this. The more things like uh, he's done a Polaroid camera, a clock radio, and a cassette tape. Okay, like little household items. Yeah. Does he make them actual sized out of bronze, or are they like bigger, miniature? Uh, Actual size. Okay. What does he do with all this? First of all, no, wait, let me me backtrack. (laughs) Where does he acquire so much bronze? I don't know. (laughs) From the bronze seller. (laughs) Sure, the bronze store. So how does one work with bronze? Do you uh, you heat it up and like mold it? Do Do you hammer it out like a blacksmith? Do you chisel it? I'm not familiar with bronze work. Do you just make a mold? It looks like it's like you heat it up and then pour it into like a mold, like bronze casting. Oh, so so it's more of a mold. Yeah, a casting thing. Okay. And so does he go around creating molds of all these items in his house? Yeah, I guess. I mean... What's he do with them? Well, the three I mentioned actually got to be displayed in an art exhibit in New York. 
Well, that's cool. How many has he made outside of the three you mentioned? Plenty. Hmm. This is interesting. It's got you got to take a lot of specialized equipment. I th- I would think to make and cast bronze. Does he do this at his home, or is there like a studio somewhere where he's? Got- I can't imagine he has like a furnace hot enough to melt bronze in his home. <laughs> well, I can I don't know in a garage or the shed out back. I don't, I don't know what goes on in Georgia. I guess I'm gonna say this one's a spin. Whoa, he went back and forth. There was some F sounds, some S sounds. He settled on spin. I settled on spin because I'm having flashbacks to the Halsey episode where you gave Halsey like nine different hobbies and they did like one of them. So I, every time we bring up a hobby now, I get a little afraid it's about someone else. And I I just want to say spin. I did do that. That was, that was great. <laughs> Look at me go. Just to be safe. <laughs> this is a fact. Oh, Halsey, let me down. <laughs> No, it's real. So Michael Stipe is a, a what, a bronzier? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, the three I mentioned were part of an art exhibit in a Rogan store in, in New York. Wow, that is such an interesting hobby. Yeah, that's why I included it. I wonder how you get started in that. How do you go, this is a thing I really want to pursue? Be rich. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Step one, have money. The $80 million recording contract is what funded that one. <laughs> My next one for you. This one I've labeled REM will not be there for you. You gave it another title. <laughs> and it's a curious title. Where will REM not be? Just like emotionally supporting me? No, just emotionally won't be there for you. Okay, good. That would be a little parasocial. What are you talking about? When you say I'll be there for you, my brain goes to Bon Jovi. I'll be there for you. It rains or it pours. I'll be there for you. Pop, 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 pop. Is that a Friends thing? People yes, it's the, the Friends, Friends theme, theme song. song. I've never seen Friends. The Friends theme song. I'll be there for you. But you, come on, I've not watched Friends either, but I know the theme song. <laughs> I don't. I don't just go watching theme songs. It's iconic. The four claps. Well, so REM are not friends with me. They will not be here for me. Yeah. The, this is a long window. I really expected you to get the reference a little sooner, so took the wind out of my mixtape sales. Oh. Uh, this is a whole way of saying that they almost wrote the Friends theme song. Almost. Okay. <laughs> but they clearly did not. No, they didn't. So what happened? So back when Friends was still in its pilot and production stages, and it was still actually being called Friends Like Us, I believe was what the working title was. It was something. It, was like, it wasn't just called Friends. It was something called like Friends Like Us or something like that. Sure. They were gonna use REM's very popular and way overplayed uh, biggest hit, "Shiny Happy People," as the theme song. No way. That would be weird. I already admitted I don't know the Friends theme song, but that would be strange. Would it? I don't know. I don't know. What kept them away from it? So I saw two different sources on this. One claimed that the one of the producers wasn't the biggest fan of the song and then suggested the one that they went with, the I'll be there for you. And the other one said that the band turned down the, the offer. Interesting. So I don't know which one it is. Well, it's because they won't be there for you. Yeah. They said, hey, will you be here for us? And they said, no. No. <laughs> that's wild. Maybe that's what inspired them to go with that song instead you know what i think this one's gonna be a fact yeah 
Yeah, Shiny Happy People was plenty popular. All right. I don't know anything about Friends, but but R.E.M. probably won't be there for me. So that's a fact. So you like it in fact? Yes. What made you go fact with this one? You felt pretty skeptical of it when I first said it. I don't know. It just seems to make sense. I imagine when you're trying to pick theme songs, you go through a lot of options, especially in the working title days. And, you know, if you find a big song that's big when your show is coming out, maybe you want to jump in. But maybe you pick your own song so that, much like R.E.M.'s intent with Mer- it's timeless well first off this is a fact yay (laughs) it is indeed a fact okay 50 50 on the first two (laughs) yep not a great omen for uh, how this is gonna go (laughs) well there's plenty of time left plenty of time plenty of time peter buck caused an emergency landing did he pee all over the airplane (laughs) (laughs) no well maybe i don't know (laughs) depends on how (laughs) severe the emergency was So, he causes the landing. Does he cause the landing from within the plane? Yes. Okay. How would he do it from outside the plane? By being outside the plane? (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) That's a good way to cause an emergency (laughs) landing. There are other ways. He could have been like an air traffic control guy saying, Oh, Now you need to land emergently. I don't know. (laughs) So, what's the emergency? Uh, uh, Just that he was extremely intoxicated and causing a huge scene. Oh, one of those guys. Yeah. Where was he flying from? Like, how long had the plane been in the air when they said, all right, this guy's the worst. We're, we're calling it. Oh, that's a good question. Where was the flight from? I don't have that information. Oh. Hang on. It was a transatlantic flight, apparently. Oh, no. I hope they weren't transatlantic when they had to land. <laughs> Get the raft. <laughs> it was just that annoying. They said, we're putting her down in the water. Oh, it was from. It's a flight from Seattle to London. Oh, that's trans a lot. It's almost faster to go the other way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, so Seattle to London. Where did they land? Don't know. Okay. Looks like it was once they made it over into Europe, but I don't know what airport. Right. Because he was taken into... He was actually tried in a London jury. Oh, wow. So it all happened overseas. That's pretty serious. What on earth did he do that caused an emergency landing and a jury trial? Uh, Went on a drunken rampage. <laughs> yeah, but that's... Okay, rampage is different. I was going to say, that's not normal drunkenness. He, he tried to steal cutlery from the plane. Bold move in the middle of the air. Started a fight. When the pilot confronted him he said you're just a effing captain and i'm rem okay what (laughs) no wait what yeah (laughs) he damaged british airways crockery and yeah assault wow that's a laundry list that's a lot i don't know what to think yeah apparently they made an emergency stop in paris is where they ended up touching down i don't know why they would have been why the plane would have been going that way from seattle i don't feel like the most efficient route and what was the result of all this the trial and and like what was what happened to him nothing oh because he's rem he (laughs) yeah he was acquitted by the jury that's weird (laughs) yeah that's, that's quite weird. I, I think this sounds true. Apparently, during the flight, he consumed 15 glasses of wine. Whoa. I don't even think they'll let you do that. <laughs> yeah. It's transatlantic. Buck testified that he suffered a bad reaction due to the combination of sleeping pills and the 15 glasses of red wine and had no memory of his alleged actions. Oh, and the jury bought it. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, he overturned a breakfast trolley, mistook a hostess trolley for a CD player, claimed a stranger was his wife, tussled with a crew member, and covered them with yogurt. You're saying too much. (laughs) I wasn't sure whether this was true, but you had a suspicious lack of details 
Uh-oh. And I'm just not quite buying it. I think this is a spin for some reason. Some part about it is untrue. Really? Going with a spin. Oh, also, apparently, they had to pull him away from an exit door when he announced he was going home mid-flight. Uh, nope. <laughs> That's when you make an emergency landing. <laughs> going home. You're not getting anywhere, dude. Oh, gosh. So, it's going with spin. Yeah, I'm sticking with it. That is a wild story, but I don't believe it. This is a fact. Aww. He was found not guilty of air rage and all the wow. stuff about the yogurt and the going home transatlantic <laughs> That's flight. so wild. I can't believe it. I'll be darned. Yeah, it is wild. Imagine being covered in yogurt by Peter Buck on an airplane. Imagine, I guess. <laughs> it's probably roughly the same experience as being covered in yogurt by Peter Buck on the ground. <laughs> but, you know, just 30,000 feet up. All right, I got one more for you. Yeah. Yes, go on. And it's another interesting named one. The name facts are always too much. And it's simply Michael Stipe is a cat. <laughs> Michael Stipe is a cat. Yes. Is this in the same way that Nina Simone is a horse? Where it's like just a cat named Michael Stipe? No, this is actual real life Michael Stipe. And by cat, I just mean he has nine lives. Okay, yeah. once again, <laughs> when we... When we just open the curtain a tiny little bit, it's, it's a very different situation. Nine lives, you say? Yeah. So he likes to immortalize things in bronze, and he is nearly immortal himself. <laughs> yeah, and by that I just mean he's almost died a lot. Yeah, sure. Well, like how? Hit me with some, some examples. Oh, boy. I've got seven of them. <laughs> oh, he's on his eighth life? <laughs> yeah. Only got two left. Oh, no. And these are just the ones I was able to find. I don't know. You could, uh, you, there could be another one out there. I don't have the most information about any necessarily one of them. So you can try to ask me questions about them. But this was just in a blanket story I saw about all of his near-death experiences. Okay, so it's kind of a face value kind of thing. Well, you might. You, I have a couple of details about some of them that he gave some extra details on. But in chronological order of his life. He nearly died of scarlet fever when he was two. Okay, that's understandable and sad. He fell out a two-story window at age seven. Oh. He nearly died of hypothermia when he was stranded on a mountaintop at age 14. Wait, hold on. So that's, <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. So 14-year-old Michael Stipe climbs the mountain. <laughs> Sorry, your reaction to that was great. You kind of, like, scarlet fever happens. Two-story windows, accidents happen. But you put yourself on that mountain. Yeah. What happened? Was he not prepared or, like, someone with him wasn't prepared? Yeah, he got lost on a Boy Scout trip. And the cold and wet weather gave him hypothermia. and He almost died. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah. He survived a, a minor bear attack at age 19. That's, I don't think there's such a thing as a minor bear attack. It, it is or it isn't. <laughs> that's just how he described it. Uh, okay. <laughs> a motorcycle crash at age 22. A lightning strike at age 26. Well, okay. That's another one that's like... <laughs> We're stopping again. <laughs> I, I almost stopped you at the bear attack, but I figured you didn't have any extra details on that. Um, Lightning strike? Yep. How many people have been struck by lightning? It's not many. I don't know. Wow. Uh, let's see. Yeah, in 1986, the REM singer yeah purchased a taxi cab and was driving it through Georgia when purchased? the so like he got in a taxi. Oh, got right? it. I thought you meant like he owned the taxi. No, he was like doing a side job. The taxi cab was struck by lightning, electrocuting him. Okay, he wasn't just like out in the rain. Yeah, <laughs> just like that's what I. It sounded like at first, and I went, whoa. <laughs> 
And then finally, he was hit by a tour bus at, at 31. Tour bus? That's straight out of Mean Girls. <laughs> so, was it going fast? Uh, I don't I don't have any details on that one, unfortunately. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> that's a lot to take in. Yeah. Seven near deaths. Apparently six near deaths and one minor bear attack. <laughs> Yeah, that whatever one. that means. Yeah. Oh, this is so wild. I think I'm gonna say this one's a fact. Going with fact. Think I went all facts this week. I feel like maybe you did. It's been a while since you did all facts. I just don't see any reason to doubt any of these. It is a little bit unbelievable. Just the odds of all this happening to him. I think a lot of people wouldn't live through one or several of those things. But look at him go. Look at him. Look at him go. Look at him go and and give me that 50-50. Yep. Well, unfortunately, for the second week in a row, we are playing Factor Spin. Because this is not a 50-50 week, because this is a spin. Oh, wait, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> he's not a cat. That sucks. Uh, or at the very least, he's only on life four because some of these were true. I just added a lot of extra ones. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> the scarlet fever, the mountaintop hypothermia, and the lightning strike are the only real ones out of all those that I said. The mountaintop thing was real. Oh, dear. Yeah. So the minor bear attack didn't even happen. No, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't stop me on that one. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the true parts of this fact are actually the most ridiculous one. (laughs) Yep. And it's over 50% lie, you know, because it was three to four. So I don't feel like I really cheated you too much by just throwing in like one fake one. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for you today, which is a funny thing for me to say because we edit the episodes. (laughs) Yeah. We have as much time as we want. But But you're just tired of me after losing. I'm tired of you (laughs) after losing. So make like Michael Stipe and go get hypothermia on a mountain. Just think about it this way. At least we're not teasing the audience with a dry spell of 50-50s for eight weeks in a row. Not that we've done that before. But yes, it was a good week of factor spin for me. Unfortunately, you knew that R.E.M. was not your friend. That's right. Nope, not my friends. They will not be there for me. But I'll be there for you on next week's episode for another exciting round of Fact or Spin. Yeah! I'm convinced he called the fact R.E.M. will not be there for you just so he could use that line when he left. Yeah, I bet you he did. (laughs) Let's talk about the album cover of Murmur. It is a picture of a train trestle in Athens overgrown by this invasive weed called kudzu. In 2000, the city wanted to tear down the trestle because it was really old, and that's what you do with really old things. But fans raised such an outcry about what's come to be known as the Murmur Trestle that they voted to keep it around back in 2000. And so they did. It was a major tourist destination in the city for quite a while, but by 2020, like, it really was not doing well, and it wasn't financially viable anymore. So they had to take it down. The city had plans to make a replica trestle and preserve some parts of the old one. Uh, I'm not sure whether anything's come of that or not in the last two or three years. But now you know. The Murmur Trestle. Storied history of Athens, Georgia. Yeah, it's all right looking. The the album art. All right looking. Okay. The highest of compliments. It fits. Yeah. I think it definitely works well with the music. And especially the color scheme. This really like muted blues and grays. It's like a cold steel kind of a look, you know? And I think a lot of the songs on this album kind of mirror that cold exterior. Yeah, you're right. Well, we've got a dozen alt-rock tracks to dig into. Not a baker's dozen. Just a normal dozen. Get out of here, bakers. With your weird dozens. If you're a baker... Turn off the podcast now or (laughs) renounce your baking ways and join us on this journey. So first off, before we start talking about each individual song, I kind of want to get your thoughts 
as a whole on like lyrics for this album. Okay. Michael Stipe has a very distinct and unique lyric writing style. Yeah. That that could rub some the wrong way or be off-putting to some. What I liked about it was that it made this album really fun to research. I learned a lot about some deep cut things, some historical context, uh, some stuff we'll get into, but I can see why. I mean, without having that context, this definitely would be a a pretty dense record sometimes. What did you think? Uh, Off of one listen, it's hard to... I don't get the opportunity to do all this deep dive into the lyrics like you did. That's true. I wasn't like off-put by it. Well, I just mean a lot of them are really obscure. It's almost like Inner Wave, right? Remember how Inner Wave just hits you with some images and kind of leads you in a direction? Lyrically, this album is like that, even though musically it takes a, a wildly different approach than that one. Yeah, I, I find that almost more refreshing. than I don't, I don't want the lyrics to be too simple. Well, that's true. It's just that in addition to like their depth and obscurity, they're also a little repetitive. That we will get into. <laughs> that's kind of what I was leaning towards. But yeah, let's start with track one, Radio Free Europe, one of the most famous early R.E.M. songs. And, you know, like we talked about, they even put it on their debut EP. It was kind of the one that broke them into anything musically. Yeah. It was recorded as a single back in 1981, but they re-recorded a new version for this album in 1983. And according to Bill Berry, this song saved their career. Like we mentioned, they were touring in that van. $2 a day. Scraping by on $2 a day and barely breaking even. And so this song came out and Barry said, college radio and major city club scenes embraced the song and expanded our audience to the extent that we moved from small clubs to medium-sized venues and the additional revenue made it possible to logically pursue this wild musical endeavor. I dare not contemplate what our fate would have been had this song not appeared when it did. So it's interesting that their first song ever is the one that saved the band. I liked this one. Me too. What do you know about Radio Free Europe? Not the song, the actual like thing. Like, like, assume it's a radio network. It is probably one run by the U.S. government that broadcasts to Europe and the Middle East. Boy, yeah, you might be right about that. And its mission is to promote democracy and freedom. That's correct. Yeah, it sounds like you're just Googling (laughs) that. But yes, that is what it is. Nowadays, it's known as Radio Liberty. Radio Free Europe started in 1949 as a part of the Cold War. Today, they're still going. They broadcast to 23 countries in 27 languages. And yeah, their goal was to, I mean, promote democracy, but it's also to allow free access to information in places where it was restricted or hard to come by otherwise. And, you know, in 1949, that's really just a fancy way of saying we want to counteract communist propaganda in the Soviet Union's sphere of influence. So this song is about that and about how quickly this distribution of information could make the shift into propaganda. Kinda. Once again, the lyrics are really something. They take a lot to decipher. And that's partially because Michael Stipe was writing lyrics as they were recording the song. He didn't have it done when they were in the studio, ready for the recording. And so he said, okay, well, guess we're going for it. At least for the first demo recording. I'm assuming he finished them between 1981 and 1983. And now. And now. Yeah, it's done now. Don't worry. But for the most part, he says the lyrics are, quote, complete babbling. So as complete babbling, we really kind of just have some buzzwords to work with here. And that's a trend that we'll continue to see. That's what I do every week. You just babble with buzzwords? Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Right. (laughs) Well, so this is like, Stipe says a lot of R.E.M.'s early work takes on this kind of form. He said, it's like when you have a song in your head, but you don't know many words, you either end up singing nonsense or semi-coherent words based on the lines you do know. That's sort of what R.E.M.'s earlier songs are like. Boy, I do love Radio Free Europe, though. I'd be surprised if it doesn't make it onto our favorite 
favorite songs playlist. Well, I won't pick it, so that's going to force you to pick it. <laughs> I might be surprised if it doesn't make it onto our favorite songs playlist. Well, so you're going to pick it. I might not. I don't know. We'll see. You're calling it now? No, we'll see. I love the bass on this song, though. I think it's about as good as it gets. Pretty good. Radio for Europe is top tier. What do you think about track number two? Pilgrimage. I like it. Oh, that's how that's pronounced. I thought it was pilgrimage. No. Like a, like a wizard of the pilgrim. No, like like a pilgrim. I just really don't want to say pilgrimage, so I went. I, I forced that joke in there. Yeah, you really did. Well, just to make sure we don't miss any of the connotations, since connotations and individual words are so important here, Pilgrim, you know, I, I feel like we lose track of the word pilgrim because of the Thanksgiving, like Puritan pilgrims. Yeah, the, the shiny belt buckles on their hats and see, no, you're losing <laughs> it. But a pilgrimage is a long journey to this sacred place with you know religious significance. Usually, there's a certain reverence to it. Yeah, which is, I mean, why the Puritan pilgrims are called pilgrims is because it was a religious journey of sorts to find the turkey. Yeah. No, but okay. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah? Since you apparently did all this research into the lyrics, tell me about the two-headed cow. Great. Well, I don't know if I can tell you much about it, <laughs> but it does seem like religious imagery, right? I mean, cows and calves are typically like, I don't know, there's a biblical golden cow that gets worshipped and... Sacrificed, right? Yeah. Sacrifice happens and, you know, things that are weird, like a two-headed cow, often get feared or revered, you know? People don't know how to explain it, so they kind of turn to the spiritual side of things. Didn't a, the Greek god Apollo have cows? Wasn't he like the god of cows? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. You're the Greek mythology guy. I'll take your word for it. One of the gods had a bunch of cows. I thought it was Apollo, but... Could be. He seemed like a farming guy. He's the sun god. Yeah, so he makes things grow. Yeah, because plants need the sun. Yeah, and cows need plants. So without yeah. Apollo, all the cows would die so there you go glad we're not doing a greek mythology podcast <laughs> that'd be fun <laughs> it would be yeah but aside from the two-headed cow we have other imagery too like hatred that's clipped and distant we have speaking in tongues we have all these different religious images put together and i think part of what it's trying to evoke in this song is the sense of the lengths that people will go to in support of some really outlandish things people you know are willing to break a lip by speaking in tongues they're devout enough to take their pilgrimage to a two-headed calf but like it's just this really staunch expression of belief and how the people are willing to follow it i love the piano it's very repetitive yeah it is super repetitive like the verses are more like choruses yeah and it's not just lyrics too the music gets repetitive the music is the thing that I noticed on this album. It was the kind of complaint that you sometimes have where it just doesn't build to anything sometimes. Yeah. The energy level stays at a pretty constant level, not just song to song, but across the album. And that's that's an interesting thing to grapple with as you make your way through 45 minutes of... of it's very difficult to keep your attention when neither the lyrics or the music are ever changing. It becomes this like white noise after a while. They don't change. That's true. But I, I think if you really... You have to be intentional about paying attention. Yeah. You can't just expect it to grab you. You have to seek it out. Yeah. And I don't know. That doesn't feel like a good thing to me. Music should grab you. Fair enough. I just, I, I don't know. I really like the wide sound that they, that they take here with the guitar playing at different octaves. Pilgrimage does some really cool musical stuff, even if it caps at a certain level. Yeah. And they were like, it's so cool. We're going to do it 50 times. Oh, didn't hear it the first time. Here it comes. Didn't hear it the second time. Here it comes again. <laughs> 
<laughs> that got me laughing, James. It did? That's great, because that's the next track, Laughing. And if you thought we botched the Greek mythology... This one does have some Greek mythology. Oh, look at us both going to the same place. I was going to say, if you thought we botched the Greek mythology in the last song, <laughs> wait till this one. Roman, I think. Uh, I wrote a whole paper about this in college. Really? So you know then? Good. I thought I'd have to teach you, and I was not prepared. I tried to do a lot of research on it. I was ready to teach you. Good. Oh, by all means. Find out as James and I teach each other about this sculpture on our newest podcast. This one. It's... Roam it. <laughs> you know, and I think Laughing is a pretty good song on this record in that it presents this alt-rock sounding introduction. Like when I start laughing the song, when I hear the song laughing, it feels like an alt-rock song, which is great. You know, whereas Radio Free Europe and Pilgrimage kind of faded in slowly, laughing just kicks right into the action, and I like that. I feel like we did a lot of talk about Roman myth and didn't actually say what we were referencing. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> so I feel like we should back up. I just wanted to mention how the song starts. I really like. Yeah. But yes. So the very first the very first line is Leakoan and her two sons. That's how you say it? Okay. I wasn't sure. Leakoan. Yeah. In my head it was like Laocoon and I was like that's not it. <laughs> that doesn't You're like that doesn't sound Roman. I I don't know any better, but I know that it's wrong. <laughs> I think I could be butchering it myself. You know me, I'm not the greatest at pronouncing things, but it's something like Leakoan. Yeah, sure. If I if memory serves. I heard my professor say it enough. Right. And it's a sculpture that's in the Vatican. Yeah, but uh they misgendered it. <laughs> they did. <laughs> One of the most famous Vatican like Roman sculptures and they misgendered it by mistake apparently. Like they didn't even bother to put in enough effort to make sure that they got it right. Oh, maybe it was a mistake. I thought it was intentional. Nope. Did it just because he liked the way it sounded with the word her instead of his. Well, that's another reason that he chose to write a lot of the lyrics this way. It's just based on the sound of the words. There's more better examples of it later on in the album, but that's definitely one of his regular tropes. That was kind of nitpicky. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. No. It's a really cool statue. Like We did an in-depth analysis about this, about like why every muscle on his body is flexed at the same time which you know isn't physically possible <laughs> that's not how muscles work right and about you know him and the serpent wrapped around him and the two sons big fan i mean yeah the myth behind it is that he and his sons were attacked by sea serpents after they almost screwed up the infamous trojan horse plan yeah yeah so that's i mean that's the story and in most versions of the story they die but in this version probably because it's written by the invincible michael stipe he talks about <laughs> how the trio ran the gamut settled anew and found a place fit to laugh behind locked doors in safety they kind of escape all their perils and just hide and laugh about it it's kind of an interesting message i think about recovering from close calls and finding happiness in spite of challenging circumstances but i don't know well, what do you think does referencing the sculpture give any extra weight to this Huh, it was all right. It was all right. Okay. Again, you've you, he distorts it so much, it kind of loses some of its power. I think so. Yeah, it sounds like he takes a lot of the things out of context yeah. and kind of repurposes them. But now we can laugh about it. All right, pop quiz. How do you pronounce it? Laocoon. Close. Uh, passable. Passable. Yay, C's get degrees. Close enough. Better than I would have done if you would quiz me on a random name in a random episode. <laughs> so I know. <laughs> well, let's talk about the album's second single, Talk About the Passion. Uh, I thought you were about to say, let's talk about passion. That would have been a great segue. No, we're talking about Talk About the Passion. Ah. So I guess we can talk about passion. We're talking about talking about passion. Yeah. We're not actually talking about passion. We're just like, man, no. can you believe people who talk about passion? Michael Stipe's talking about people who talk about passion. All their empty prayers and empty mouths. Yeah, this is a song about hunger, according to Michael Stipe. But 
fans and analysts and people had such a tough time grappling with this one that people still think the meaning is pretty unclear. I see. Yeah. And it kind of takes on another spiritual angle right off the bat in the same vein as pilgrimage, talking about empty prayer, like asking how long we're going to let empty prayers leave people starving. How long is that going to fall on deaf ears? And again, mega repetitive. Yes. I, I started to notice it heavily myself at this point. I was like... You were like, uh-oh. <laughs> Connor's not going to like this. <laughs> yeah, if I notice how repetitive something is, I know how you're going to feel about it. But I do just love the guitar tones all the way throughout this album. They just ring so clear. And that's so nice. And I think Michael Stipe always has just the right amount of grit in his voice. I do like his singing voice, yeah. He's got good vocal control. And between the guitar and the vocals and the, again, bass and the drums, really it's just the instruments. The band does a good job. I think the album, I'm showing my hand for Final Spin, but I think the album shows a little bit of the like underdevelopedness of being a debut album in an untouched genre. I think it shows the band has a lot of room to grow. A lot of potential, but I think this album is maybe before they get to where they're going to end up. Uh. Have you ever been walking around a mall or a college campus or something and seen one of those kiosks <laughs> sitting about covered in flyers and posters and stuff? And wanted to, like, knock it over, and so you had a bit of a moral dilemma. Okay, well, no. Oh. I mean, maybe you do. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how you were going to get moral into this. I, I got the kiosk joke. No, 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 no. It's not a joke. That's actually what inspired Moral Kiosk as a song. Oh, I see. Yeah, he saw one of those, and he said, I like it. I'm going to write a song. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Much like when he decides he wants to cast something in bronze. <laughs> Just like, I like it. Yeah. Do you think he's bronzified a moral kiosk? I hope so. That'd be cool. Anyway, uh, Stipe contrasts the outside world with the attractive inside of the moral kiosks uh, with another series of buzzwords. You know, this cold, dark, fire, twilight, all these image words. Very descriptive, figurative language. We got more Greek symbolism. Yeah, we do. Yeah, she, there's the line in verse two. She was laughing like a Ore, or Horai, depending on how you want to pronounce it, two different versions. And that was the Greek goddesses of the seasons were the Horai. Yeah, seasons makes a ton of sense with the same kind of seasonal, like the coal and the dark and the fire. There's a lot of nature imagery and yeah. things that make sense seasonally. There's actually like a famous dance called the dance of the ore and that's associated with spring flowers and sweet fragrances which you may find inside the moral kiosk where it is so much more attractive i think honestly the best part of this song is the chorus melody and the dual vocals that kind of battle back and forth and tug of warrior focus inside of the moral kiosk i really do like that a lot yeah it's, it's all right up next though is the album soul ballad perfect circle it's one of the fans favorite songs which is totally understandable to me oh really <sighs> oh yeah do you like perfect circle have you ever tried to draw a perfect circle I, we talked about this literally not four episodes ago with lights and the perfect o and i said every time you draw an o you should try and aspire for perfection you went no i go for passable o's so it sounds like you don't care about perfect circles too much no i just i i didn't ask about me i asked about you yes I've never been able to draw a perfect circle. No, it's obviously incredibly difficult. I like it as the only kind of ballad-ish song. Yeah, well, its inspiration is a little ambiguous. Peter Buck claims it was inspired by watching a football game before a concert. Michael Stipe attributes it to a girl he was dating. I, I really couldn't tell you. 
I really could not tell you which one this is. And that's a weird pair of things to not be sure what the lyrics are referencing. I like the way he says he sings shoulders. That's a good one. I don't like that he does it three times in a row, but... (laughs) Well, maybe not. But musically, this song was primarily the work of Bill Berry. He wrote a lot of the musical parts to this one. Uh And when he passed away, every time they played it live, they dedicated it in his memory. Aw. Yeah, it's nice. The song's titular perfect circle is taken from the second verse. They talk about a perfect circle of friends and acquaintances. Kind of like the Venn diagram between the two is wholly overlapping. And everyone you're acquainted with is a friend. Not that REM has ever experienced that because they won't be there for you, but still. I'll be there for you. Da, 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 yes. da. Right. I don't know where the clapping is in the song. You don't even see, you don't even know. You, you just, ugh. I didn't, I said I wasn't the big, I said I know the song though. I get the reference. Whatever you say. I think it's a pretty good double meaning too because you have like a circle of friends. Like that's a pretty popular idiom that plays well with the concept of a Venn diagram. I like Perfect Circle. The other one I really like is apparently kind of like R.E.M.'s Smells Like Teen Spirit because it has a complicated history and that's Catapult. Pew! I like it. It's a fun song, but it's not on the band's A-list. Why not? Well, so this is one of the ones I talked about when they worked with their old producer. His name was Brian Haig, and he pushed the band really, really hard to make this song. He insulted their playing as they were making it, and this is the one where he tried to add effects and instruments and dubs after the fact. The band really did not like what he was doing to Catapult. It wasn't their vision. And so they finally got to release their version of it on an early EP, but uh, but mostly for Murmur. They reworked the song into more of what it was meant to be. But, I mean, given all that drama, they really had a difficult time with it. And by 1984, they pretty much cut it from all their live shows altogether. Oh, well. Yeah, they just really could not get back into it. It's all right. It's nothing special. What? (laughs) Did we miss anything? Catapult. Catapult. I love it. The instrumentals are actually pretty decent on this one. But, eh. It's, again, it's that guitar part carrying. It's carrying this album. Yeah, you're always biased towards guitar parts, though. I know. It could be the world's worst song in the world, but if it has a good guitar part, you're going to be like, I love it. Well, would it be the world's (laughs) worst song if it had a good guitar part? No. Uh, Yeah. I rest my case. I mean, imagine like the worst possible lyrics, the worst possible every other instrument, but the guitar shines through. Oh, I've got some albums coming up for you. (laughs) Anyway, that's Catapult. I'm glad we do have this version in its REM intended state. I'm glad they got to put it out, even if they don't like it anymore. And with that, I hope you're sitting still as we talk about the next song. I vibrate the entire time we do this. Do you? Is that how excited you are? Or are you nervous? No, it's just my molecules are always vibrating, so. Uh, Oh, so nothing's ever really sitting still. Correct. Deep. Deep. Sitting Still is track eight. It started out as Radio Free Europe's B-side. Oh. Now, this song is wild. Guess what Michael Stipe says Sitting Still is about? What he thought of and tried to do with these lyrics? Uh... I think Michael Stipe might have stated that this song is a bunch of nonsensical vowels that sound right when put together. Yep, that's that's exactly <laughs> what he said. So most of the lines are quite literally gibberish, but he did admit to putting some thought into a few of them, and some of them have legitimate meaning. But most of the time, they're just these interesting, fun-to-sing vowel sounds. The chorus urges you to sit and try for the big kill, a waste of time sitting still. Basically just telling you to get off your butt, go do things. It annoys me that that's all the lyrics are. I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of some of some good lyrics, and uh, it annoys me that these ones are just nonsense. Well, I think there's more to them than you might think, I, especially on verse 2. I want to say verse 2 is good, but I can't be 100% sure. 
I just like the back and the forth between these contrasting senses. I'm the sun and you can read. I'm the sign and you're not deaf. I like that that verse. What about it? Well, so Michael Stipe's sister actually is deaf. So people have tried to guess whether some of these lyrics are inspired by his experiences learning from her, which I think, I mean, that makes sense to me. And I think that take is only strengthened by the song's conclusion. I can hear you. Can you hear me? It's, it just feels like this song has more to it for him personally than we can necessarily quite dig out of it. Uh, I don't know. It just, again, this is all just the fans trying to put meaning to it, right? But he himself has said it's all nonsense. No, they're trying to get meaning out of it. He said some of it wasn't. So we just have to figure out what's what. Yeah, whatever. Anyway. Well, I think we're about to do one of the best track nine titles of all time. Track nine, nine to nine. Perfect placement. Perfect placement. The first line of the song says, steady repetition is a compulsion mutually reinforced. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I know. It's a pretty <laughs> accurate line. But steady repetition is all over this album. Sure is. Nine to nine is an all right song. I feel like that's what we could just say about every single one of these songs. It's an all right song. Yeah, I think <laughs> this seems to be where we're coming in. Because they're all about the same. Just, they have the same aura to them. They sound like they belong together, which is great, but they are just very similar. My favorite part of this song is where they do a twist on a traditional little kid's prayer. They say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord to hesitate. Which I think makes this into a really profound expression about fear or uncertainty of death. Like, let me have a little more time. Which, I guess Michael Stipe has prayed this prayer six times. <laughs> Saved his own life. Anyway, are we ready to move on to Shaking Through yet? Did we talk enough about 9-9? We did. <laughs> yeah, we're shaking through this album. On to track 10, Shaking Through. Much like you, I usually only listen to this record pretty passively. At this point in studying it, I was actually starting to get annoyed digging into these lyrics. Good. I just really... You've made your way to, to, to Connorland. I did, I guess. I just hit a wall on Shaking Through. I don't know what this song is about. I tried. You can try. I won't. I don't know. It's just it's just these chunks and phrases. Just everything. Just because he likes the way it sounds. And it sounds great. Sings great. Sonically, the words fit together like a little puzzle. But man, is it dense. Well, I mean, like, some of the sentences just don't make any sense. Like, what could this by three be ten? Like, what's that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I tried, but we're shaking through opportune. And again, melody's pretty solid. And the annoying piece of it is it sounds like it should make sense. It does, yes. The coupled lines, could this by three be 10, honor marches on, sounds so much like it should be like referencing something in some yeah. way that has like whatever, but it just, it's nonsense. It's gotta be. I couldn't find anything to tie that to. Yeah, it was pretty something. I do think this song actually is another fan favorite, but I also think the band does not think as fondly of it. Uh, Shaking Through is another one that R.E.M.'s kind of given the thumbs down. But, I mean, that said, I did find a lot of references for things that they talk about in We Walk. Yeah? Yeah. Hit me with them. Well, musically, I think We Walk is one of the most distinct songs on the album. Just in terms of it finally sounds a little different. Yeah. We get a really plucky arpeggio with these minor chords. It's simple in sound and it's really easy to feel the pulse of the song and get into its groove. This was the song that for some reason sounded familiar to me. Maybe it was just because it was different. So I was like, oh, something new. This has to be familiar. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Just the, the, the kind of bouncy, the up the stairs, the, 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 I just, it sounded familiar. Yeah. Well, there's only so many ways you can work over that 
two chord back and forth thing. It's a weird song too, because it feels like you could just take the chorus and verse back to back and just copy and paste everything about this song. Uh-huh. Music, instruments, lyrics, all of it. Just copy, paste, copy, paste, like two or three times. It's kind of wild. Up the stairs yeah. to the landing, take Oasis, Marat's bathing. That's your verses. All five and a half of them. Yeah. But that is the thing I'm talking about. That's the, that's a reference. I did a little Google of Marat. I found Jean-Paul Marat, a French physician, journalist, scientist, and political theorist who published this newspaper called Friend of the People, and he was really outspoken against France's political institutions as a leader during the French Revolution. And what this song references, in 1793, he was assassinated while he was taking a bath. He had some kind of skin condition that left him in the bathtub a lot of the time. And so somebody wanted to kill him. They went up the stairs and to the landing, and Marat was bathing. So they killed him. If you're curious, the bathtub that he was killed in is still around, and it belongs to a wax museum in Paris. Huh. If we're ever in Paris together, we should go see it for some reason. Add it to the list of spin it on the road things to do. <laughs> spin it on the road. We came to Paris to look at a bathtub and see the <laughs> spot where Buck got kicked off a plane. We got a couple European things to do. Make a little trip out of it. That'd be fun. Anyway, that's We Walk. It's a copy and paste song. Interesting in its own right. I'm just sitting here reading about his assassin, Charlotte Corday. Yeah, I know. It's a wild story. I'd encourage you to look up that assassination tale. She was apparently uh, death by guillotine. She was guillotined. Yes, as many French Revolution people were. Apparently she's been in a lot of cultural works. Yeah, it's a very significant event that most of you maybe hadn't heard of until now. Surprise. Apparently she appears in the mobile video game Fate slash Grand Order as a playable servant of the assassin class. And, whoa, look at this. Solving Marat's murder is a mission in the video game Assassin's Creed Unity. Corday is one of the suspects and confesses to the murder. Is it? I've played that. <laughs> So have I. Did I miss this? Apparently. Whoa, look at us go. Big fans. I am a big fan of the franchise. That's cool. I'm going to have to go replay it. Huh. That's really neat. Maybe it's one of those side missions that I never did. It, it definitely probably is. Either way, very cool historical event. And appropriately, the album concludes with yet another reference in Greek mythology, West of the Fields. Ah, yes. Yeah, I think it's a very fitting closing track because, I mean, lyrically, it talks about death and long-gone intuition and moving west of the fields, which is a reference to the fields of Elysium. Yeah. The place where, as you know, all the heroes and the good people would go hang out when they died in Greek mythology. It's like their version of heaven is paradise. And so I think to be west of the fields kind of implies, first of all, that we've missed it. We've passed away to the underworld, but we didn't get paradise and were instead forced to be these outsiders looking in. I like west of the fields. Is it? I don't know. If you're not in the fields, if you're to the west of them or something, you have to be outside of them looking in. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. That's yeah. technically true. But I think it goes a little deeper than that. I couldn't figure out whether like the actual punishment part was to the west or to the east. So my understanding... I was not expecting to be quizzed so much on my Greek and Roman mythology knowledge. I know, you should have brushed up. I should have. That's what you get for listening to it once last night. Yeah. Homer, you know, Homer, like the first... Simpson, yes. Oh, no, man. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the poet. The poet. Yeah, yeah, one of the first great, like, storytellers. He... I believe referred to Elysium as the Western location of West, like Western paradise. Like it was what was, you went to the West to reach Elysium. So if you've gone oh. West of Elysium, you've gone past 
paradise. Like it's like what's beyond paradise. You know, like th- thinking of it, putting it into some sort of modern day pop culture reference, the good place, right? Like when they finally make it to the good place, and they're like, now what? Paradise is one thing, but what's past paradise? What comes after paradise? Mm, okay. Once you've reached paradise, what's left? You gotta go west to find out. West of the fields to find out what's after paradise. I don't know. Yeah, good thought. I don't know. Could be, honestly. Could be, or it could just be complete gibberish, as a lot of the other ones were. <laughs> pretty dense, pretty dense. So yeah, I, let's get into Final Spin. Without further ado, I think it's time. One thing I do want to say is that the lyrical tropes and things that we talked about on this record definitely do change and fade off on later REM works. It's not always like this. But yet you chose this one. I did. I like this one. And again, debut album, Radio Free Europe, one of the band's biggest early songs. It saved the band. I don't know. I think as a band trying to find their footing, this is an excellent start. And I think Murmur really conveys a good sense of the potential that they had, even from the get-go. As far as sound and style go, I really don't know if alt-rock gets any better in its early days. I think this is like peak. Thought you were about to be like, ever. (laughs) Oh, ever? I do think it gets better than this eventually. But there's a reason this was the best, the the 90-something best album before 2003. And again, it's, I think, like you said, we're able to see all the things that came after this, that this opened the floodgates for. And so maybe this feels a little overshadowed by what it's given rise to. But for its time, okay, yeah, I, I can get into it. Lyrics are obviously its worst part. For music, I love a lot of these sing-alongable choruses. Maybe some of the verses do get lost, but choruses always t- uh, kind of tend to save it. So I'm giving it an 85. Lyrically, I was a little generous because I kind of like the, the image style of presenting things. How dare you? It's dense and hard to grapple with, but it's fun to sing and lock all these syllables together in interesting ways. It sounds good. Lyrics, I'm giving a 78. Instruments and production, quality instruments, like I've said, but it's just so samey. I'm giving it an 83. And overall vibe, historically significant, good background music. Again, not really an attention grabber. One you really have to dig for if you want to enjoy deeply. I'm giving it an 84 for the vibe, which puts its overall score at an 83.5. Is that higher or lower? Miley Cyrus. Great question. It's been a while since I've asked that question. It's higher. You thought this was better than Miley Cyrus. I do, yeah. And actually, if you're curious, the thing is closest to that we've done an episode on is it's at number 308 on the list, just a smidge above Good Charlotte's The Young and the Hopeless, which has an 83.4. You sat here and just bashed this for how samey it was and nonsensical the lyrics. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to be generous and give it a nice score that's bigger than Miley Cyrus. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Not starting 2023 off on a good foot. That's all I've got to say. You know, we're still in the middle of year two of the podcast. My, uh, my revengeance re- here. Uh huh. Well, I mean, lyrically, this this album led me to a lot of cool things. So the, a lot of references to stuff and historical events, and I don't know. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with how the album is. Just because it led you to some cool stuff doesn't mean the album was any good. You're gonna write a song using nothing but a peanut butter jar that can lead you to a lot of cool stuff. Not going to make it a good song. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, peanut butter jars. So I'm guessing 
you probably were a little more unkind to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't say. Hit me with it. Uh, I think I've hit you with most of it already. Very samey, very repetitive, not just in the lyrics, but in the music as well. It was very hard to keep focused on. But I did have this, a few highlights that we talked about. I didn't enjoy the Greek mythology and stuff, but that doesn't really factor much into my score. No. That's the kind of stuff that would have factored in more if the rest of the album had any sort of meaning. <laughs> <laughs> like like yeah. if the rest of the album had meaning and then there was this really cool deep meaning in a couple of the songs that I was able to dig into I've been like oh that's nice but when that's the only when I just have this uh incorrect half the time uh references to a subject that I quite enjoy and that's all I get in terms of substance out of it it, it doesn't go too far mm. and so with that my top three in album order it's got radio free Europe on there uh, I put Perfect Circle in there since it was kind of the ballad. Nice. I put We Walk since it sounded different. And for Carnival Mention, I went with West of the Fields just because of the fun little analysis we did. Solid. That's an okay top three. That's all right. There's not really a way to argue one way or the other against any of those picks because it was also same sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. You could say Catapult belongs in there instead, and I'd be like, yeah, I don't know how I could argue for or against that. Catapult. Because <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I know. I get it. And so this one, I'm gonna give. I've got a guess. Okay, go ahead. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm kind of thinking this will land at a four. A four. I think you might put it below John Mayer. Wow. At first, I thought about you'd put it maybe below Kin, but then I remembered some of the things you liked about America. You know, some of the good songs on 30 Seconds to Mars and John Mayer, obviously, Why Georgia and a lot of the fun stuff he does. I don't know. Uh, Tell me how right I am or how wrong I am. No, you nailed it. It's going at four (laughs) peanut butter jars out of 10, right above. Oh. Janis Joplin right below John Mayer. Wow. Nailed it. Impressive. <laughs> I don't usually nail your guesses. No, you're usually way off, actually. Yeah, four peanut butter jars because I can make music better than this whole album with just a peanut butter jar. Well, maybe we should do a track on Connor's Hippin' and Hoppin' album with a peanut butter jar just to try it. This uh, this Hippin' and Hoppin' album is going to have to be like a three-record album with the amount of songs that we've come up with. It may be a lot. Maybe it'll just be the highlights. <laughs> or just like really, really short songs. Like, like 30 seconds of me just whacking a peanut butter jar. <laughs> the next track. That sounds more likely. <laughs> well. Well. Before we started the episode, I maybe would have guessed you'd put it a little higher. But it is consistent with your paradigm. I'm shocked you put it as high as you did based on what we had kind of talked about pre-episode. Yeah, I enjoy it. You spent the whole episode bashing it, and then you were like, but there was some cool guitar stuff, and I'm a sucker, so I'm going to be nice and give it a better score. I enjoy it as a listener way more than I think it's good as a critic. Well, apparently not, because you critically rated it pretty dang high, comparatively. No, that's because I enjoyed it. (laughs) So your score's been influenced by what you like not by what it really deserves yeah i don't think so what you're saying is miley cyrus is actually better than it technically i don't think you're putting words in my mouth and they don't make sense just like michael stipe anyway that's gonna do it for this week it's a really interesting way to come back from willie nelson i that's for sure that's what i try and do is i pick things that'll be interesting to follow each other keep us all on our own toes yeah
And if you want to see what's coming up next in the order, be sure to tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. We've got another <laughs> fun album coming your way. Actually, I'm quite excited for next week, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts on next week, too. But you'll have to wait another seven days for that. In the meantime, if you just can't wait seven full days for more Spin It, you can find us on Twitter, at Spin It Pod, on Instagram, at Spin It Pod Official, and on the web at www.spinitpod.com. Tell all your friends. Rate five stars. We've got uh, 78 other episodes you can go listen to. We do have quite a back catalog at this point yeah and then there will be more so have fun and until then keep keep spinning how do you pronounce that name again see if you still retained it leo cohen (laughs) it's it's leaving you it's left you it's leaving it's gone i think it's leocoan is assassin's creed in the spin cycle now i think it is i think we're gonna do the assassin's creed soundtrack maybe that'll be my next revenge (laughs) pick no <laughs> it's a great game, but oh, I can't talk about Ezio's family for 10 years. Hey, I'll go on.